Welcome to the Not Old Better Show Art of Living interview series on radio and podcast. I'm Paul Vogelzang, and we have one of the more interesting and timely shows with returning guest and audience favorite, Dr. Arthur Lupia, who will introduce or reintroduce in just a minute. But quickly, if you missed any episodes, last week was our 717th episode when, in honor of Memorial Day and the USS Arizona, I spoke with Kevin Klein, Executive Director of Operation 85 and the USS Arizona. There are still 85 unknown Navy and Marine service members from the USS Arizona, whose remains are in unmarked graves. Two weeks ago, I spoke with Dr. Christy Tuff DeSapri, women's bone health specialist and founding physician of Bone and Body Women's Health to offer interviews and spread awareness of postmenopausal osteoporosis, or PMO. Excellent subjects for our Not Old Better Show audience. If you miss those shows, along with any others, you can go back and check them out along with my entire back catalog of shows all free for you there on our website, notold-better.com. You can Google Not Old Better and get everything you need about us. Given our political climate today, notwithstanding political parties and politicians, we are deluged with political endorsements. When we stop to think about voting and how we decide, today's guest Dr. Arthur Lupia, who is the Gerald R. Ford Distinguished University Professor at the University of Michigan, tells us with his research that he can clarify how people make decisions and form or break coalitions in complex political environments. Dr. Lupia will tell us today about understanding the persuasive nature of endorsements, which are apparently often so persuasive and may even do more harm than good, defeating their impact and damaging credibility. Dr. Lupia will tell us today about how political endorsements influence voters' perceptions and decision-making process during elections, what factors contribute to the credibility of a political endorsement, and Dr. Lupia will share evidence that when a publication whose credibility comes from science decides to politicize its content, it can damage that credibility. Let me set the stage briefly. In 2020, Nature Magazine, a highly respected science publication, not political but subject to influence, endorsed Joe Biden in the U.S. presidential election. A subsequent survey that we'll talk about today with Dr. Lupia found that viewing the endorsement did not change people's views of the candidates but caused some to lose confidence in Nature magazine and in U.S. scientists generally. I want to jump right into this interview with Dr. Lupia, so please join me in welcoming back to the Not Old Better show on radio and podcast, Dr. Arthur Lupia from the University of Michigan. Dr. Arthur Lupia, welcome back to the program. Uh, thanks for having me, Paul. It's always great to talk to you. Um, I hope you're well. I hope your family's well. Um, we've talked before. You've, all, you've really always been a, a, a favorite of our audience, and, and you just, just do so many interesting things. You're, of course, uh, with the University of Michigan. We've talked to you before uh, in your role with the National Science Foundation. So I, I want to jump in and talk to you about the world of political endorsements because we, we really are seeing these in lots of places, and 
You've written about this. You and I have had a chance to talk about this subject. But I wonder if you just explain to our audience the concept of political endorsements and and their significance, because I think they really do pose. They bring up lots of questions. There are lots of uh, you know resulting situations that happen uh, as a you know as 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 a direct impact of political endorsements. So maybe set the stage for us a little bit there. Yeah, Paul. Thanks for asking the question again. Thanks for having me on. Uh, political endorsements are are really important. In a way, they're part of the lifeblood of American politics. Uh, a simple way to think about what a political endorsement is it, it's basically like a traffic light in politics. <laughs> it's a signal that tells you, you know, should I stop here? Should I go forward? Should I accelerate? Should I hesitate? Um, in the U.S. system, what endorsements are are individuals or organizations make public statements about what they prefer. But the role of the statement isn't just to tell you about their preferences. Uh, the role is often to help you uh, understand your own preferences. And so political endorsements are, are conveyed often and used widely. And, you know, if we, if we have an opportunity to, to talk about different places in U.S. politics where people have to make important decisions, mm-hmm. you see endorsements all over the place. Uh, so they're used a lot. Uh, sometimes they're amazing and sometimes they're problematic, but they are everywhere in the political environment. So even regardless of voter demographics, regardless of age, I mean, my audience is going to be familiar with political endorsements, but maybe you can, maybe you can walk us through how they actually influence our perceptions and our decision-making and, and even how they pose some problems in doing that. Yeah, yeah that's a great question. So I think you know, one way to think about what they do is to just generally understand how people use information. And one way that we try to figure a lot of things out is we look at what other people are doing. So when we go to a new city, for example, you have this decision about when do you cross the street? And in some cases, you know, you can look at the traffic light and you can see the little sign with a guy walking, you know, it's safe to walk. In other places, if you do that, you still get hit by a car because no one looks at the no one looks at the signs. And so one thing we often do is like, well, when are other people crossing the street? And this is such a fundamental part of human decision making. If you go to a new community, you're noticing, well, how do people dress and how do they speak and when do they get loud and when do they interrupt one another? And then we learn very quickly to adapt. So it's just a fundamental thing that we do. Political endorsements help play that role, right? I mean, politics just sends us these new issues all the time, and some of them are very complicated. And so there's a sense of, like, how does this possibly relate to my life and what I care about? And the, the main role of political endorsements is they give people a way to say, oh, this group that I know uh, has a particular point of view. Um, I have a sense of how their preferences relate to mine. Maybe I can learn something about my own preferences by listening to what they, they do. And individuals also give endorsements. Sometimes it's celebrities. And so if you have some sense of how the celebrity or the organization's position relates to yours, you can use it the same way you would look at, oh, this guy's crossing the street now. Maybe it's safe for me to, to cross. Hmm. Fascinating. I, I love that use of the, of the term we, we, we adapt. And so I wonder if you'd talk a little bit more about that and tell us about what, what are the factors that kind of help us adapt and help us understand the credibility, I guess, of a political endorsement because there've got to be some specific qualities or characteristics that make an endorsement more influential 
that and then and then kind of allow us to adapt to it is is that kind of your meaning with that use of, use of that word absolutely mm-hmm. and that that's a really important question to ask you know if we receive an endorsement from you know the uh, international widget association mm-hmm. or a guy named Joe Schlobotnik says you know he prefers we have no if we don't know who the organization or the person is the endorsement doesn't mean much so the credibility comes from some perceptions we have of the person making it. There's a lot of research on this topic, but one way to boil it down is that there are two key factors, and one is perceived relative expertise. So does the organization or the person who's making the endorsement know more about the consequences of a decision I might make than I do? So again, you know, not talking about politics, when we uh, are looking for financial advice, you know, there are some people who know more about how uh, money works and how financial markets works and return on investments than we do. If our car breaks down, there are, you know, people like mechanics who know more than we do. If we're having relationship issues, there are some people who know more than we do. And so they, we have perceptions that they have more expertise and their advice matters more than other people who we might love and adore for other reasons. But in a particular domain of decision making, we think, well, they don't really know more than I do. Right. So perceived relative expertise is one key uh, idea. The other one is a perception of shared interest. There are some people who you might think are highly expert, but you may think they're trying to manipulate you. So the, the kind of the, the story of the used car salesman, right? I mean, they know a lot more about the car than you do. And so that makes them an expert. But sometimes we think that our incentives are completely misaligned. They want to sell us a car. We want a, a good car at a low price. And so in that case, there's the perception of, of expertise, but maybe not the perception of shared interest. So where credibility comes from is when those two things overlap. When you find an organization or a person who you perceive to have more expertise than you do in the area where you're going to make a decision, and you perceive they share interests, right, those are the types of endorsements that are going to be the most credible. And so the good news there is when you can find a person or organization for whom those things are actually true, you can make some really complex decisions that are way beyond your expertise by simply understanding the endorsement of another person. And, and if someone says, well, well that, that sounds really unlikely. Again, think about how we use traffic lights to drive. Mm-hmm. Traffic lights are these very simple devices that help us make this incredibly complex decision which is how do we get through a, a crazy intersection with 150 drivers, you know, 50 of whom are on their phone and the other, you know, the other 100 have a coffee cup in their hand and are yelling at their kids. You know, how do we get through an intersection without being maimed by all these folks? And the traffic light, you know, acts like an expert and it's so reliable in terms of how it works that it lets us make a very complicated decision simply. So endorsements work well when we can find people like that and when we're correct that they have the expertise and share our interests, when we're mistaken about, when when we don't have enough information to tell whether the person we think is an expert actually is, or when the person who we think shares our interest actually does, when we don't have enough information about that, that's where endorsements can go bad. Again, very helpful. Perceived expertise and shared interest. So let's dive into that a little bit and maybe tell us about the impact that that has had perhaps a couple of examples in elections where perceived expertise and shared interests really influenced outcome? Absolutely. It's a great question. Well, the, the most 
you know, sort of dominant and famous example uh, pertains to party endorsements. Mm. If you think about all the people across the country who run for president, who run for Senate, the House, who run for governor or mayor or dog catcher or whatever it is, most of these people we've never met. We may never meet them, but we're going to give a lot of them very important responsibilities. And so particularly early in their campaigns, how do we assess you know, what they're likely to do given office? The endorsement of a political party, knowing that a candidate has been endorsed by the Republican Party or the Democratic Party or one of the other parties, tells you a lot about that person that you've never met. And the way that the U.S. electoral system is constructed, um, most of the main offices in this country are held by a Democrat or a Republican. So in some sense, these endorsements are incredibly powerful. And people who have them you know, are much more likely to be elected than folks who don't. So those are the most powerful ones. But the other place where you see endorsements uh, doing important work is in a primary. So in a primary election, a number of people are uh, uh, battling one another to be the Republican nominee or the Democratic nominee. And in that case, the endorsements tend not to come from the party. They come from people who are well-known in a party. So if you're a Republican, you know, you may be very interested in uh, the, na- uh, the National Rifle Association, and do they endorse a candidate or not? If you're more interested in the economy, you may be looking for, you know, from, from libertarian organizations, and, you know, who do they like and who do they dislike? Similarly, if you're a, a, a Democrat, you may be listening to the Sierra Club, right? You may be listening to people who have you know, certain views on abortion or some of the big issues of the day, and they may say, you know, amongst the Democrats running for this office, we endorse this one. This one is our favorite. So in primaries, um, endorsements tend to help people who already know which party they're on understand the choices they have within a party. The other place in politics that you really see endorsements making a big difference is with ballot propositions. In many states, uh, there's no party label on the ballot proposition. So there are no Republican ballot propositions or Republican uh, propositions. So the question is, uh, how do people figure out what's going on? And this is where community leaders, uh, interest groups, industries, existing politicians can come in and say, you know, I am for this proposition or I'm against it. And many campaigns uh, for uh, many ballot proposition campaigns are very much influenced by who takes which side. Because if you ever read the text of some of these uh, ballot propositions, they go on for thousands of pages and they're <laughs> written in legalese that are, you know, even lawyers have trouble with it. <laughs> but if you can get enough well-informed people to say, you know, this is good for this group, bad for this group, that's why I endorse it. People can use these endorsements again to make the same choice they would have made had they known a lot more. So the impact is, is really different in different types of places. Um, again, for, for the general elections, political party endorsements make a, a real difference. For ballot propositions, it's usually more like interest groups. We are with Dr. Arthur Lupia. Dr. Arthur Lupia is a returning guest, and Dr. Lupia is in the Center for Political Studies at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. Dr. Lupia is the Gerald R. Ford Distinguished University Professor there. Dr. Lupia, this is just fascinating stuff. Politics is you know, makes the world go round, as, as they say. We're, we're talking about political endorsements today. And I, I wonder if you can tell us about some of the potential drawbacks or risks that are associated with political endorsements and how they, how these, these perceived 
experts, these people with shared interests, how they affect the cred- the credibility of a candidate or or the endorser. Yeah, that that's a that's a great question, and a lot of the you know ultimately does if the question is ultimately does an endorsement help you make a better mm-hmm. or worse mm-hmm. decision depends on uh, the the accuracy of your perceptions. So I'm I'm looking at an organization maybe. You know, the, the head of a local bank has endorsed a ballot proposition. And, uh, you know, if I believe that the head of this bank knows what they're talking about and that the interests of the bank, you know, with respect to the community are very similar to mine, you know, when I hear them say, vote yes on this, it's good for the community, maybe I'm inclined to do it. Where the risk is, is where I get it wrong, where there's not enough accountability for the person making the endorsement. Like maybe they say something in public that they know is false. Maybe they endorse the proposition because they'll make a lot of money, but it turns out to be bad for my neighbors and I. If I have no way of, of learning that, and moreover, even if I could learn it, if there's no accountability for the person who's maybe misleading, that's where the quality of the endorsement is more at risk. The transparency as well. If I, I, the, I may have an organization that's endorsing something, and I may not know who they are right away, but perhaps I can go online and, and, and look up what commitments they've made in the past and, and what types of, of policies they've pursued or, or what types of people they serve, what are their core values. So if I can find that again, I can make better decisions about which traffic lights to follow. <laughs> but if I can't find accurate information on that, or if there's a lot of misinformation on that, it's going to be very hard for me to use it. So one risk is really a lack of transparency. <laughs> the second type of risk is really a mismatch between the endorsement and the problem. So let's say that you and I and a couple of your listeners, like we were trying to write a law, like we want to, you know, there, there's a issue, a problem in our community, and it's not just voting for one candidate or the other. We're actually trying to write a detailed law that, that helps our community manage an important problem. So a law is a string of words, and, and in a law, which words you use matter, like where you put the word not, and are you, you know, specific about what happens if a person acts in a specific way. So to make a law, we have to string together hundreds or thousands of words in very precise ways to have the impact we want. Those decisions are so complex that a, tra- a thing like a traffic light is just too simple to help you, hmm. right? So another, if we tried to say, well, Democrats like, you know, a certain outcome, and so we're going to write, a, a, you know, a, th- a series of a thousand words that we think might relate to that outcome, it's not clear that the quality of the endorsement, that the signal just might be too blunt, too uninformative to help us deal with the nuance and the particulars of our situation. So the other place where there are risks is where you're relying on a piece of information that's just way too simple for the decision that you actually have to make. A key difference, though, is when you and I go to the voting booth, oftentimes we have very few choices to make. Mm-hmm. Um, typically, there's a Democrat or Republican and a couple of third parties. So an endorsement can help us there in a sense because we're picking maybe one out of two or one out of three alternatives. And so at the end of the day, even if the things that, that people are arguing about are complicated, for you and me, the choice in the ballot box is pick one out of the best three options. And, you know, you could use the roll of a dice or a flip of a coin to get the answer right <laughs> nearly half the time. So an endorsement, you know, can can be very effective. But if we have to figure out what is the correct way to string together a thousand words to make sure we improve safety or quality of life for our community? Uh, you're going to need more than a traffic light to, to get there. <laughs> so 
when I think about the the endorsement and its influence, who's influenced more? Are undecided voters influenced? Are they swayed? Or does a political endorsement reinforce the existing support for a candidate? I wonder if there's any research or data available that, that sheds lights on on this subject. Yeah, there absolutely is. And so it really depends on the type of election. Mm -hmm. So for uh, a general election, you know, for example, for president, the main thing that a party endorsement does is is reinforce a pre-existing preference. So, you know, as exciting as every election is, Mm -hmm. um, the data shows that most people who voted Democratic in the last election are, if they vote, are going to vote Democratic in the next election. And the same with Republicans. So when someone becomes the Republican nominee for president, the it's not really swaying undecided because people already know whether they agree with Republicans or Democrats more. So it reinforces uh, a trait, a tendency, a set of preferences that they had before. So it's reinforcing in that sense. But when you get to ballot propositions, you know, when one of those campaigns starts, very few people have actually read the proposition or know anything that it's about. Mm-hmm. So the role of endorsements there, so everybody is basically undecided. And the main mm-hmm. effect of endorsements in those campaigns is, is, on, is taking people who are undecided and helping them understand their preferences. Primary elections are a little bit in between, uh, but they, again, when, when we're in a primary, like, let's take the U.S. president race out of it, because a lot of people who run for president, particularly the ones that are competitive, already have somewhat of a national reputation. Mm -hmm, But if mm -hmm. you go to a race like governor or any state legislature Mm -hmm, or mm -hmm. any member of Congress, that's where a primary election in an open seat, if you don't have an incumbent, we don't, there are six Democrats and maybe some of them have run for an office before, but a lot of them are unknown. And that's where these early endorsements by key groups within your party, again, NRA for Republicans, Sierra Club for Democrats, there's tons of examples, getting one of those endorsements early on can make all the difference and can turn people who know they're Democrats but are undecided about a particular candidate can convert them to, you're my person. So there are real differences then at the state level, at the kind of the local government level, the federal level between uh, the effectiveness of endorsements? I, I think so, but mm. mainly it's not because of the, the nature of the office. It's just because when people who run for local and state politics they're just less likely to have had a previous profile, right? Very mm-hmm. few people run for Senate who are already ha- who aren't already famous for some other reason. Like in some cases, they're an athlete, like Herschel Walker, but in most cases, they've held another political office. So you might have heard of them, but the closer you get to like state politics, local politics, county, things like that, chances are that a lot of the people who are running, you've just never heard of before. And so when you're looking for an initial way to understand, you can try and read what they've written and so forth. But again, if the Sierra Club comes out and if, if you and I like care about the environment a lot and the Sierra Club says this candidate is outstanding, they are the best Democrat for this office. Right. That's an instant message that, OK, I, I need to think about uh, this person pretty seriously. So that, that's the, the bigger effect. Mm-hmm. And then what about social media and, and everything that's going on digitally? How does that sway us and impact influence and credibility of, of all of these political yep. endorsements. I mean, it's a, it's a mess, I think. It's, it's a mess. I mean, it has opened up one, the biggest change is that it's opened up a direct channel. And, you know, mm-hmm. Donald mm-hmm. Trump actually showed this like no candidate in American history, right? So even Barack Obama, 
when he ran for president, um, had to rely, if he wanted a national audience, if he wanted a regular connection to the American people, he had to rely on CNN or big newspapers or local newspapers or so forth. There was no real direct way for Barack Obama to, to communicate with voters. By the time Donald Trump came along, and, and just one of the ways he innovated, you know, I, whether people like him or not is a different story, but in terms of winning an election, you know, he used Twitter to communicate directly to people, not, you know, he was famous beforehand, but the, the real innovation he made was he didn't need CNN, he didn't need, need Fox News. He used them, of course, but he could have his own channel. And, you know, uh, several months into his campaign, what did he have, 20, 30 million Twitter followers to whom he could say whatever he wants. So what social media allows certain people to do is basically create their own cable news channel, if you will, that focuses exclusively on them and let them tell their story the way they want to. So that works for Donald Trump. It works for people who are already celebrities. For other folks, it allows them to build local networks. So, you know, so if you're already well-connected on Twitter or Facebook or, or LinkedIn, you might be able to activate a core set of proposal uh, of people to support your campaign. Um, where things get difficult is, is with folks you don't know. Right. So that's where the endorsement online, like, so let's say you and I are connected online and we know each other and we trust each other. And I post on my social media feed, hey, there's this candidate and I really think they're great. And let me tell you why. And you know enough about me to say, you know what, uh, he and I have a lot of the same feelings about these mm -hmm. important issues. And he also tends to know stuff about this type of thing. You seeing that endorsement on your feed can tell you something. So. Social media doesn't change the fundamental character of why we believe a thing, but they allow people to transmit endorsements in a way that just has never been possible in human history. At the same, there's a, there's a downside to this, and the downside is we can also post lots of misinformation freely now. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, processing endorsement information can be difficult. And one thing that has happened in elections is people, and this was part of the, the controversy with Russia in 2016, will make up organizations that sound like famous organizations, and then you know they'll make an endorsement, and you think it might be an organization you've heard of, but in fact it's completely made up. Mm -hmm. And so you know, and so just like everywhere else on social media, you know, being vigilant for misinformation affects the how well, uh, how much political endorsements can help you make great decisions. Mm -hmm. Dr. Lupita, you've written recently in um, Nature magazine about an instance that took place in the 2020 presidential election when Nature actually endorsed Joe Biden in the presidential election. And I wonder if we can get, get back to this role of endorsements from influential organizations because you, you talk about – this subject in the article and you you reference that it might not be such a great thing. You might want to think twice about the role that you're playing as an influential organization in shaping public opinion because sometimes it might backfire. And maybe give us a sense as as to the the article that you've written, the the role that it plays with respect to nature and how significantly that might um degrade their status in terms of reporting on science or doing um, scientific uh, work and they're just their believability factor. Yeah, Paul, thanks for asking that question. 
this this issue has been a doozy. I um, <laughs> there are these there are these metrics that track how much like media and social media attention your articles get. When I wrote this article, it's very short. It's just blown away in terms mm-hmm. of media attention. So anything else I've written, but but here's the situation. So uh, in science, there are lots of scientific journals. But there are two journals that are just bigger than everyone else. They're more famous than anyone else. And if you're a scientist and you get published in one of these two journals, you know, it's just a career changer. And one is called Science, and Science is based in the U.S., and the other is called Nature, and it's based in the U.K., but they both have these international reputations for publishing the best science in all fields, chemistry, biology, you name it, it's there. So there are these great scientific journals. And in 2020, Nature... Uh, wrote an editorial where it uh, endorsed a presidential candidate. It endorsed uh, Joe Biden over Donald Trump, and it it gave a bunch of reasons why. And so that is a very unusual thing for a scientific journal to do, because usually they publish articles about, you know, do amoeba, you know, do amoeba survive, you know, an acid attack, and things like that. So, and it leads to some questions about, well, what is the effect when a scientific journal does that? So it turns out a lot of researchers have looked at things like that. And one researcher in particular, a fellow named Floyd Zhang at Stanford University, uh, created this really ingenious experiment. He took the nature endorsement and and showed it to to people in an online survey. So there, I think there were 4,000 Americans who'd signed up to be in surveys. And he ran an experiment. He showed half the people this nature endorsement, and he showed the other half an article from Nature that was about the same length. And it was about a format change. They had like, we're going to use more pictures. We're going to, it's just, you know, it's an article about their formatting. So he, he shows half of them one and half of them the other. And they're randomly selected. And the reason the random selection matters is he then asked everyone the same set of questions. And in this design, if the people who saw the political endorsement give different answers than the people who saw the formatting article, right, you can conclude that the cause of the difference was the difference in the articles. So, so it's this great design. And so the first question he asked are all these questions about politics. Mm-hmm. Does nature endorsing a candidate affect your political views? And I know this is going to be a shock to most of your listeners, mm-hmm. but they didn't. Mm-hmm. Right? There is no version of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, <laughs> right? I think, where someone in September of 2020 is saying, wow, I'm so undecided about Biden and Trump first. Like, I don't know how many of those folks there were. I'm going to go to a scientific journal to figure out how to break the tie. Like, so I don't think that happened. But when he looked at the data, right, no, there was no effect. But there was another consequence of doing this. Uh, Zhang then asked everyone, okay, well, how do you feel about, how do you feel about this journal, Nature? Do you trust the scientific community? Ask questions like that. And I want to give you some articles about current events that have some information in them. Would you like to look at them and learn more about how science can affect your life? And what he found was for people who saw the endorsement and who leaned Republican, who leaned towards, you know, the, the person, right, who, who, right, who leaned to the right, the folks who saw the endorsement compared to the same Republicans who didn't see it, became much more likely to trust the scientific journal, to trust the scientific community. And then when they had a chance to get information that could help them improve the quality of life, a lot of them said, "Uh, no, thanks. Hmm. Right. And again, this is compared to Republicans who share the ideology who didn't see that article. So from this design, you can see that nature publishing this editorial had this effect of driving uh, some of our, you know, some conservative friends 
just away from trusting science. They also asked the question was, did you expect a scientific journal to make the endorsement? And for conservatives who like, we didn't know they did that. We didn't think they would do that. Mm -hmm. The effects were even worse, Mm -hmm. right? So, So the question becomes, should nature have done this? And the point of my article is, you know, that's their decision. But here's what's at stake. When a scientific publication, what's at stake is their credibility. Mm -hmm. And when nature puts its credibility at risk, it's not the editors of a journal or a scientist who suffers. It's the people who could have used science to improve their lives. But because a scientist or a scientific organization made a political move, they decide to stay away from the science, right? And as a result, their lives suffer, right? So that's, you know, I, that, that's how I ended the article, right? You know, when, mm-hmm. when a scientific organization does this, you guys get to keep your offices, you guys get to keep your salaries, but the people who suffer from this, right, you know, uh, may, their lives may really be affected. And then to put it back in the bigger picture, it's like, and to what end? Because your endorsement didn't affect anyone's political views, mm-hmm. right? So, um, that I, I wrote that, and a lot of people had had views on it. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to put up links so that our audience can find out more information about this uh, this study, as well as your article, Dr. Lupia, because this was this was a big deal. This was four. This was a uh, this wasn't just five or six random people. This was four thousand people that really yep. came to this whole, whole notion that. You know, kind of getting back to the, your your perceived expertise and shared interests, they just weren't there, and so as a result, it did damage. It did damage, and and Paul, the thing I, I had hundreds of scientists either write to me or post on social media after they saw this article, and they're like, "Why is this journal doing this?" Because we're in communities, we're working in communities, trying to use science and medicine to improve people's lives, and what that journal did is just make our jobs harder because every you know so many things are politicized as it is. Our work isn't, but that journal just made it harder for all kinds of scientists to walk into a community and say, no, no, we're really not being political. We're trying to, to, to help your lives. So that was the, that's the main thing I've seen afterwards is just so many scientists just shaking their heads saying, why are you guys doing this? Because you're making our jobs harder. You're making it harder for us to benefit people. So again, you know, the, the editors of these magazines, they have those jobs in a sense. It's their decision to make. But I, you know, one reason I wrote the article I wrote is just to lay out in front of them and everyone else. There are consequences. They don't appear to be good. And I really want you to be able to envision for a second who's suffering because they're real people. They're, they're our friends. They're our neighbors and things of that nature. Fascinating. Wonderful stuff, Dr. Lupia. Thank you so much for joining us for your generous time. Congratulations on this article. Again, we're going to put up links so that our audience can find Dr. Lupia's article from Nature. It's titled, Political Endorsements Can Affect Credibility. Great reading. Perfect timing for us to be thinking about this work. It's always nice to talk with you, Dr. Lupia, the man that introduced me to the American Association for the Advancement of Science and I, I play a role there, and, and I am grateful for you introducing me there and kind of making me pay a little bit more attention. This is great stuff, Dr. Lupia. Thank you so much. And please, please come back. I know that this is going to be a subject that our audience is going to have an ongoing interest in, and to the extent that you're doing additional work in this area or others, please come back and talk to us. Thank you. It would be my honor, Paul. Anytime I get to engage with you and your audience, you provide such a great service and such a great insight to folks. 
uh, I'm, I'm grateful for you and, and to your listeners. I know they're so dedicated and devoted to understanding life and helping one another. So, so thank you for this opportunity. Oh, thank you. My thanks to Dr. Arthur Lupia, the Gerald R. Ford Distinguished University Professor at the University of Michigan for his generous time today. My thanks always to the Smithsonian team for all they do to support the show. My thanks to you, my wonderful Not Old Better Show audience here on radio and podcast. Please be well, be safe, and let's talk about better. The Not Old Better Show. Remember, just Google Not Old Better for everything you need to know about us. Thanks, everybody, and we will see you next week.